look at a portion of scripture that many of us have probably heard before, but I I think it's important, excuse me, on a day like today, being a day of dedication, that we set our minds on this very important passage and understand what God would have to say to all of us here today and not just parents. I believe this psalm speaks to all of us here, whether you have children in your home or you don't. Thank you. But in some families, the second half of this passage is sort of extolled. It's sort of put up upon a pedestal above all other psalms. And I readily admit to you uh, that this psalm was foundational for my wife and I in trusting in the Lord for his provision and blessing of children. Uh, So much so that we had part of this verse emblazoned on a uh, personalized license plate just until a few years ago and when you find out how much those really are and what other things you can spend your money on you kind of let those go by the wayside but uh, we even took some wonderful trips and wonderful vacations with groups of families that we had met on the internet that knew this bible verse by heart and they applied it as such Uh, You would have thought as we gathered together with all of these families who had huge amounts of children that it was a maxi van or a church bus convention as you pulled into the parking lot, Uh, but they were all quiverful-minded as such. But there is so much more here, as I've studied this passage this week, that applies to all of us as believers and has rich instruction for us in terms of our relationship and understanding of the Lord. So I want to begin by reading this scripture to you. It's just five verses, Psalm 127, verses 1 through 5. If you are there with me in your Bibles and you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, I want to invite you to do so. Psalm 127, beginning in verse 1. God's Holy Word says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your holy word. We thank you for its nourishing uh, characteristics to our soul, its comfort to us. And so, Lord, as we listen to your word and we study your word this morning, help us to not only hear it, but apply it. Help us to not be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the provision of your word in our language, something that we neglect so often. And so, Lord, this morning, help us to cast aside all the things that would distract us and help us to focus in on what you would have to say to us today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's, excuse me, it's no secret that in our culture that children are sometimes viewed as a less than desirable commodity 
or even sometimes an inconvenience to life when they come about in the womb. And sadly, in our culture, there are even barbarians who view just the pieces and parts of children just as that, a commodity to be bought and sold to the highest bidder. But by and large, people see children as an inconvenience and not an inheritance. They see children as a risk and not a reward. They see children as a burden and not a blessing. But this is not something that is just new in our culture alone. Abortion, infanticide, infant abandonment, although it's unconscionable to our minds and it's reprehensible, it has plagued humanity from even as far back as Exodus chapter 1. When Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, instructed the midwives of Shipra and Pua to put to death every male child born to the Hebrews, but to allow the females to live, it says that instead they feared God and did not do as they were commanded to do. And as a result, God blessed them and he established households for them. But this did not deter Pharaoh. Pharaoh then ordered and commanded that all of his people throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile River in Exodus 22, or Exodus chapter 1, rather, of verse 22. Even our Lord Jesus was whisked away to Egypt by Joseph and Mary while he was still a young babe so that Herod could not have his way in trying to kill him. Yet all the male children that were born in Bethlehem that were two years and younger were brutally murdered by Herod and his men in Matthew chapter 2. The Romans as a whole in the first century did not value human life to such an extent that an infant was allowed to live or die solely on the basis of how valuable they might be into meeting the needs of the state. Even the Greeks had the same mentality towards infants and children, so much so that there is one word, one word that was infrequently used to describe the makeup of a family in Greek culture, and that word was sister. Sister. There's an inscription found in Delphi that revealed a second century sample of the makeup of 600 families. And do you know how many of those families had more than one girl in them? Six. Six out of 600s. Do the math, ladies and gentlemen. That is 1% of those families had a sister, had two girls. And that was largely due to the practice of infanticide. But sadly, as we fast forward to the 21st century in which we live, the enlightened man, the scientifically superior and intellectually superior and morally superior man of today, as we have come across our television screens in the last few months and a few years, we find that in terms of infanticide, we're not really that far away. We're not that much different from the Greeks and the Romans. 
The value of children, even today, is sometimes judged upon a strictly utilitarian means. And what that means is, is that a child is wanted or kept by its mother solely on the basis as if it will bring her fulfillment in her life or personal happiness. Is it useful for her to achieve her personal preconceived idea of what her life should look like and Think about how many children have been aborted because of they have Down syndrome or they're the wrong sex or whatever that they're going to contribute to the wrong makeup of the, quote, perfect family. The numbers would be well into the millions. And so as we start to dig in Psalm 127, we find that it flies in the face in the world's mentality in regards to children, and it will also fly into the world's mentality towards life itself. Notice, first of all, the heading of this psalm is a song of ascents of Solomon. So what is a song of ascent? A song of ascent was a song that was to be sung by the people of Israel as they would come up to the mountain temple and they would go there on one of three prescribed Jewish occasions. They were sometimes called pilgrim songs. And so they would take and sing this song as they would head up to the temple and ascend the 2,700 foot elevation change upon which the temple mount lied. Most of us are familiar with Muslims who make a pilgrimage to Mecca or Catholics who make a pilgrimage to the Vatican. The Jews would likewise make a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem on three different occasions. And as they would walk on their way, they would sing this or one of the other 14 songs of ascent that they called them that begin from Psalm 120 and run all the way up to Psalm 134. But if we would take this psalm and we would compare this psalm to the other songs of ascent found from one Psalm 120 on, this one just seems a little out of place. If we were try, going to try to imagine singing this particular psalm as we were walking up to the temple grounds and comparing it to the other ones, it just seems a little different. It's just like on Sesame Street when you had those four boxes on your television screen, right? And there's three kids in there jumping rope, and then there's one kid licking ice cream. It just seems out of place. If we took four of these Psalms of Ascent and threw this one in one of those boxes, it just seems different. I mean, you think about an Israelite walking on his way, heading up to the temple and singing Psalm 121 as he fixes his eyes up on the glorious temple. And he sings, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. You can hear it sing. You could hear someone singing Psalm 122 as they walked on the way, and they would say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. You can hear that sing. You could hear someone singing with joy Psalm 126 as they went on their way singing, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths was filled with laughter and our tongue was filled with joyful shouting. But then we come to Psalm 127, and we read it at first glance, and it doesn't sound quite as triumphant. It doesn't sound quite as joyful or victorious when we first read it. 
I mean, you think about these Jewish pilgrims coming and laying eyes on this spectacular, magnificent temple that even the world's leaders and the dignitaries would come from all over the Near East to come and lay their eyes upon. And the sense of awe that they would feel as they would lay eyes upon it and start to climb up that mount and worship. This psalm just doesn't seem to fit. And it would sound that way even more so if we would read it as it was written in the original Hebrew. In the Hebrew, the sentence structure is just a little bit different. It's more uh, a little bit like in a staccato form, a staccato fashion. In the original Hebrew, if you would read it, it would say, In vain they labor who build it without God. In vain they keep watch over the city without God. In vain. And so it's emphasizing vanity. And so it sounds a little different from these psalms of a sense. But as we look into this psalm and we dig into its meaning, we start to see that it most certainly belongs here in the psalms of ascent. It most certainly is triumphant. It most certainly is victorious. Why? Because it sings of the sovereignty and the rule and the reign of God over all things. It sings of a triumphant Lord in whom we are to be dependent upon. From building to protecting to working to even childbearing. It sings of a Lord upon whom we can cast all of our anxieties upon. This psalm is a manifesto on the reign of God over all things in our lives. So look at verse 1 with me. It fits in this context. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Now, as I mentioned, this is a song of ascent, but it is also a song of ascent of Solomon. And if there was anyone in the Bible who knew anything about building, it had to be Solomon. Solomon was a builder of builders. You could call him the Donald Trump of the Old Testament. He built the temple, but not with the bad hair and everything. He built the temple. He built his home by the temple, which took 13 years. The temple took, I think, seven. So you can see where his priorities lied, right? He built a summer home in Lebanon. He built homes for his wives. And yes, this is the guy that had 700 of them. He built entire cities such as Hazor and Gezer and Megiddo and many, many others. He was a builder. But here he says that unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. But if we could say that if there was anyone who knew anything about building, it would be Solomon. We could also say if there was anyone who knew anything about vanity, it would be Solomon, right? In Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 11, he says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Who does that? I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves, and I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. 
All that my eyes desire, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and that was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind. And there was no profit under the sun. After all that, he writes in this verse, one, right here, that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. This guy knows what he's talking about. His life was a wreck. His life was full of discord and turmoil. And so this absolutely goes to show that you can absolutely know this truth and you can write this truth But there's a point where you won't apply this truth, and it will lead to utter ruin. But what he's saying to us here in verse 1 is that everything that you do, everything that you put your hand to apart from the Lord will be absolute vanity. It will lack real eternal value. It will be worthless. It will be futile. And this is a principle that flows into every aspect of our lives. It's not just talking about home construction here. It's not just talking about parenting, although it applies there. But it includes your workplace. It includes your classroom. It includes your business. It includes your home. It includes everything in your life, no matter what it is. It really speaks to us about self-reliance and self-sufficiency and how futile that really is. Every single thing that we endeavor to do apart from the Lord is utter and absolute vanity. We don't have to look much further than Genesis chapter 11 when men made bricks and they tried to build a tower to reach up into the heavens apart from the wisdom and blessing of God. And as a result, he turned his face against them and he confused their language and he scattered them abroad. And we can think about the words of our Lord Jesus in John chapter 15 verse 5 when he said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, you might be saying to yourself, you know what? I do all kinds of things apart from the Lord's help. I I don't really rely on God, on His help, and I seem to make it through the day just okay. And I would say to you, first of all, that you couldn't do anything apart from God's gracious hand that allows you to do so. That very breath you're taking right now is a gift from God. That very heartbeat that you have surging through your vein, that is a gift from God. But I would also say to you that you might just do those things and you might accomplish much in an earthly sense, but it will never add up to anything eternally and those things are never, ever really going to satisfy your soul. We see that uh, Solomon just told us about all that. It would be utter vanity. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 lays out this principle for us in these terms when it says, whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than from men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. We should be going to work 
and engaging in our labors as if we are serving the Lord. Does not every single one of us in this room, including myself, need to hear that this morning? We should be going to work and engaging in our labors as if we are serving the Lord. And can I qualify this statement for you stay-at-home moms this morning? This includes you. This includes you. You should be laboring in such a way that for your family that you are laboring for Jesus Christ. Just because you don't get a W-2 at the end of the year does not mean that it's not labor. You want to come over to my laundry room, I'll show you some labor, okay? It's tough work. My kids have been in the hospital. I've been doing it for a couple weeks. It's work, all right? (laughs) But if we don't have utter dependence upon the Lord in whatever we engage in, it will end up being futile and vanity. The second thing he tells us is in verse 1 there is, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. And what he's saying here is that what God builds and develops, God will also protect and defend. But notice that it's not saying that the watchman's supposed to be negligent in his duties. It doesn't say that he's to take a siesta and just kind of let God do it all. But he's to remain alert and awake in his duties as a watchman of the city, but to trust God that ultimately he will protect. The, the uh, principle was articulated by Oliver Cromwell of the British Navy, who was noted as saying, let us trust in the Lord, but keep the powder dry, right? Trust in the Lord, but lock your doors is a modern day vernacular, I would suppose. But in other words, we're to have an outright dependence upon God to protect our families, but we are to be vigilant to watch over whatever might bring them harm. But ultimately, it does not matter how much ammunition you stocked up on on Black Friday. It does not matter how many AR-15s are in your gun cabinet. Okay, Our ultimate dependence and our ultimate safety of our homes must rest in the Lord. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some may boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of of the Lord our God. Listen, when you have God on your side... When you have God as your defender, there is no amount of scud missiles that could come to your home and cause you any harm. But this isn't just talking about physical harm here. He's also talking about spiritual harm. There is an entire world out there that would love to do nothing more than to seduce your children away from following the Lord. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit, be on alert, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And too often in the home, we're actually telling our children to go pet the dumb thing, right? We're we're letting them watch whatever television program they want. We're letting them watch whatever movie they want. We give them unlimited access to the world's vices on the internet. Listen, don't pet the lion. Kick the kitty out of your home, okay? Pay attention. Know who your kids' friends are. Know what they're watching. Be on alert. Be vigilant in your duties as a watchman over your home, including the internet. But above all else, 
Pray. Pray for the Lord's protection of your children. I wonder, myself included, how many of us fathers, if I may pick on you for just a second, how many of us are regularly praying for our children? How many of us men in this room are negligent in our duties to beseech the Lord for divine protection for our children? How many? If we would survey this room, and I say this in confession to, uh, to you, that this is an area that we all probably need to do much work in. We need to trust the Lord for the divine protection of our children in our homes. We need to be regularly seeking the Lord as our ultimate defense for our families. Then verse 2 has our third vanity statement. It says, it is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. So for the third time, we're told that something is vain here, meaning it's empty, it's futile, it's useless. We can't avoid this word. It's coming back to us again and again. And so what is this saying? This is saying to us that it is a waste for you to continually burn the candle at both ends by getting up early and staying up late in order to try to continually provide more and more stuff for your family. It it seems like a righteous motive to try to provide every possible thing we can for our children, doesn't it? But that's not what this text is saying. How many families are running here and running there and working more and more hours in order to try to have some certain type of home or a certain type of lifestyle for their families? This says that it is a waste for you to do so. This is saying that you're better off living a simpler life, less extravagant lifestyle and staying at home and being connected to your family and to God. Now, this is not conflicting with the statements that we find in the scriptures about diligent labor, such as we would find in Proverbs 10.4. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And, and likewise, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 that if, if a man will not work, he will not eat. This psalm is not a psalm to be lazy. This is a psalm for the other extreme of work, and that is overwork. This is talking about working your brains out for nothing. Thomas Manton said it this way. He said, quote, the meaning is, that though worldly men fare never so hard, beat their brains, tire their spirits, rack their consciences, yet many times all is for nothing. Either God does not give them an estate, nor the comforts of it. But his beloved, without any of these racking cares, enjoys contentment. If they have not the world, they have sleep and rest. With silence submitting to the will of God, and with quietness waiting for the blessing of God, Well then, acknowledge the providence that you may come under the blessing of it. Labor without God cannot prosper. Against God and against His will in His word will surely miscarry. But notice the last part of verse 2, the reason that it is vanity, is because you, as the beloved of God, will receive everything you need even in your sleep. How comforting is that. First of all, number one, that God calls you his beloved. Now men, think about if you would happen to come home, the brownie points you would receive if you'd walk in the door and say, hello, my beloved. 
You know, score, right? In ter- it's a term of endearment, right? My beloved. And this is what God is saying to you and me, our beloved. And as children, we are the beloved of God. But that's a whole nother sermon. But second thing is we see here, how comforting is it that God gives to you while you rest? Charles Spurgeon said that we should note how Jesus slept amid the hurly-burly of a storm at sea. He knew that he was in his Father's hands. And therefore, he was so quiet in spirit that the billows rocked him to sleep. It would be much oftener the same with us if we were more like him. So basically what he's saying here in verse 2 is that we need to stop fretting about this or that. We need to stop rising up earlier and earlier and going to bed later and later in order to try to obtain some sort of lifestyle beyond our means. No net result of good. You're chasing after the wind. No benefit to you or to your family will result by you constantly working in your absence from the home. It's all vanity. Maybe you started working Monday through Friday and you're picking up Saturdays now. Maybe you're working 12-hour days every day. Maybe you're picking up every overtime shift you can do. Maybe you're taking on more clients than you can actually handle. God's Word says to you that it's vanity. It's a waste eternally. But then we come to verses 3 through 5. And it's like the psalmist had sort of like a a revelation here, right? It's like he suddenly came upon the discovery of what is really valuable. If the first two verses were talking to us about what is a waste and what is vanity, the last three verses tell us what we should value. Look at verses 3 through 5 with me. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies at the gate. So first of all, it says, behold, right? This is similar to like when Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you. This means, listen up. I got something important you need to jot down. This is important stuff. Take note. This is a true statement. Behold. But then we see the three metaphors for children. Children are a gift, a reward, and an arrow. And so first of all, we see that children are a gift from the Lord. You know, your children are given to you by God. Although you and your spouse have a part in that process, the conception of children in that womb is ultimately the result of a gift coming down from God. It's not a matter of biology alone. It's not just a simple transaction that occurs between husband and wife, but this is a miracle from God that a child is conceived in the womb. God is the one who opens and closes the womb, and it's riddled throughout Scripture. Genesis chapter 20, verse 18 says, For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. In Genesis 29:31 it says, "Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren." In 1 Samuel chapter, uh, chapter 1 verses 1 through 4, we see again how God had closed the womb of Hannah. 
Even in Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, the psalmist recognizes the miracle of God in conception. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The formation of a child in the womb is nothing short of a miracle coming down from our Heavenly Father as a gift. Now you need to understand something else very clearly here. In that this child being a gift to you from God is that apart from your relationship to Lord, apart from your relationship to your wife, your children will be your greatest treasure you ever possess. That child you may be holding in your arms this morning right now, that child that may be sitting beside you right now, that child that you might get in the car with here in a few moments, that child that may live far away from you right now, that child is a precious gift to you, given to you by your Heavenly Father, and should be viewed as one of your greatest earthly treasures. Verse 3 continues, The fruit of the womb is a reward. A reward. This really conveys the idea that something uh, is to be cherished, that something that is highly regarded or something that is valued. We, we think about a trophy uh, being displayed in its case or maybe set on a mantle or something like that. Or you think about these kids when they go to Awana. They put on these Awana shirts and these Awana vests that they got to have, right? And they take care of it, and they're pretty proud of it when they wear it. But this conveys something that is highly esteemed in our lives. Do you look upon your children today as your greatest reward from God? Do you see them as a prized possession upon which God's favor has rested upon you? You know, you you think about someone who has a a trophy displayed and they might uh, occasionally keep it shined up and polished and arrayed it in, in such a way that it brings them a sense of joy and satisfaction when they see it. Is this how you respond when you see your children? I remember a a brother-in-law I used to have, unfortunately. Uh, We were gathering together for Christmas, and his father, uh, who was in his 60s or so, came into the room, and he had four children, four adult children. And they hadn't seen their father for a little while, but my wife remarked and said to me, watch this dad, how he went to each of his four children And he embraced them, and he spoke with them, and he said, this is my reward, this is what I treasure. He stopped by and made sure that he touched and hugged and spoke to every one of his children. He saw them as a reward from God. So they are a gift. Children are a reward And then it also says they're like an arrow. Verse 4 says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. The the imagery here sort of reverts back to what we found in verse 1. Remember there it said that unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman watches the city in vain. And so this imagery here for children here is similar in that it's a means of defense or a means of warfare. It's as if your children are to be an extension of you of the fight for which you're involved. They're, They're to be fighting the same battles that you're fighting. They should have the same goal, the same target that you have. They know who the enemy is. They're watchful for the same things that you're watchful for. And so, for you parents this morning, 
I got to ask you, do your children know what you value the most? Do they see you live that life out, even in the home, the things that you cherish and the things that you say you revere? If your children were to stand and give a testimony of your life today, would they say that my mom and my dad loved Jesus Christ above all things and they lived it out? Would they say that about you this morning? But I want you to also notice in this verse here that those arrows are still in the hand. It's, it's too little too late to try to change an arrow's direction when it's in flight. I know as my wife and I have matured in the faith, uh, we both remarked how much we wish we knew back then uh, when our oldest kids you know, were younger. We, we wish we could tell them the things that we know now after walking with the Lord for so many more years. So while your children are still young, while your children are still of age to be directed and aimed, this is the time that you should be pointing them to their destination. But it also says that they are like arrows that you have in your youth. I I tell guys all the time at work, don't wait to have children when you get married. You know, when you get married, or rather, when you get married, don't wait. Yeah. Get married, have children early. How about that? (laughs) Have them while you're young, right? Because I'm going to tell you from experience, 40 years of age comes right like that. And your vigor and your strength and your vitality is not going to be increasing. Have your kids while you're young. It's kind of funny you think about it as well. You know, most most couples say, you know what? We just want to get married and, and wait a few years until we have some kids, right? We, we just want to get to know one another uh, a little better before we have children. But you know what? You want to get a, to know a guy really, really well. You give that guy a hungry, cranky baby that needs a diaper change, and you are going to know what he's made of real fast, right? Verse 5, <laughs> verse five continues, How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Now this quiver or this number of children has no numerical value placed upon it, all right? I've heard people try to argue, well, it's that's obviously back then it was 8, you know, so 8 is No, it's not 8. It's not 10 or whatever. Whatever God gives to you in the number of children is what God has given to you as a quiver. It doesn't mean that you can't take any more in through fostering or from adoption because an adoption is to display the manifest glorious gospel through adoption. Amen? But when you see, receive the gift of children in whatever number that you have and you direct those children to follow Christ and you launch them out as arrows into the world, this will bring you nothing but joy and blessing and satisfaction in your life. Third John 1.4, he writes, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Your greatest joy will never lie in your possessions. Your greatest source of happiness will never lie in your vocation. No one will ever remember how many hours you put in at the office when you die. No one remembers any of that. But they will remember the legacy 
that you leave behind for your children. That they will remember. There was a story of a man who was lying on his deathbed with his daughter kneeling down by his side. And she remarked to him, there is no greater blessing than for children to have godly parents. And the father responded back to his daughter, and the next greatest blessing, as he looked at her with a beam of gratitude and joy, is for parents to have godly children. There will be absolutely no shame in your life for you to raise godly children. There will be no regrets for you in trusting the Lord to protect and build your house. There will be no regrets for you spending time with your family rather than spending it in overwork. And so God's Word calls upon us this morning to examine what is it that you truly value. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing of children. We think about Abraham who was given the promise of the blessing of children that would number beyond the stars in the sky and the sand to be counted. And during this time in December, Lord, we think about the blessing of a child that came to us in the form of your son. What a joy to have and know the Savior. Lord, as we depart from here, help us to apply these things and not just hear them. We thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.